people want to really grow and scale and go to that next level. The issue is companies can get more complicated. You lose that edge. You lose that innovation. If your systems aren't dialed in, you're just going to become the laggers that, that aren't doing exciting things. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? In today's episode, I speak with Nathan Young. He is the CEO of Find Your Audience, which is another growth marketing agency, similar to mine, but um, up in Canada. But also he runs a really cool Instagram account called Marketing Bytes, where he's constantly sharing the latest and greatest and marketing tactics, hacks, or learnings. And so we compare notes. We talk about if he was starting today and building a growth team or marketing team from scratch, what he would do, what he looks for when building a team that can do something that goes to the next level. Common mistakes companies make when looking to grow and hit big goals. Then we go kind of tactical on what it takes to be good at growth. We look at his journey, his winding path to working with startups, with angel investors, and then having his own agency and just compare notes there. So if you're at all interested in learning about marketing or kind of nerding out on it, we talk about it or we go into a little bit of the agency life. So really hope you enjoyed this episode with Nathan. All right, today on the podcast, I have Nathan Young. I've been stalking his video content for a little bit now leading up to this. So Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jim. Looking forward to it. Yeah, so it's fun to chat with another fellow marketer, growth person, whatever the heck we want to call what we do. So I'm going to come off the the top rope aggressive. Like, Nathan, let's say we're like building a company together. I'm like, all right, you're the growth guy. You're the marketing guy. Let's go. And you have to like assemble this dream team. I'll let you choose. Are we going like B2B? Are we selling SaaS or a service? Or B2C, we want to sell t-shirts, whatever. You can choose B2B or B2C. Like, talk to me about building that growth or marketing team from scratch and give your self constraints or not on budget, but like, who is that team that's going to like get you off to the races and going? Cause I want to like start here and go a few different directions. I, I love that. And that's an incredibly, and you would, you know, you're asking that question because you know, that's an incredibly tough question to answer because you're <laughs> like, Nate, you know, you're going to, you're going to have some budget constraints because we're, we all don't have billion dollar budgets and that's like our number one thing, right? We don't, we don't have an unlimited amount of resources. So I'm going to go, you know what? I don't do B2C a lot, but I love B2C. So I'm going to say I'm going to do a B2C product. But I'm going to use B2B titles because I'm used to it. I would definitely really want a product marketer. So, so very similar to that of like a brand manager, someone who's just focused on the product. I really want to have someone who has a full accountability and responsibilities around really looking at that product, identifying white spaces, ensuring whatever we're building to this product is really hitting a pain point and that we have features that actually provide tangible benefits. And I want someone to own that. Like their entire job is like, you got to handle on the right side of that product. Why do we have it on the right side? Why is it moving upward? Are we solving an actual pain point, right? And, and really 
focusing on those people who like maybe on the industrial design side where they're focusing on that product design. The other thing that I would want on my dream team, and this would be like the perfect, like this is like, let's just say best case scenario. I want a creative director who just crushes it on content, meaning like they're also a content creator. If you got a creative person who's also a content creator, I would just die because it would be like, it would be the, the dream come true, right? You'd have this person who could not only drive creative direction, but also produce it themselves. And the beautiful part of that is, is that there's always a disconnect between the creative vision and the execution. So if I could get someone to build the playbook and build all the foundation of that content first from like literally firsthand experience and, and knowledge, because it's the person who's actually driving that vision, I think that would be an amazing way to start a marketing department because again, that disconnect is sometimes so heavy. So I've limited the two people because I feel like that's like, a, it's not too big, but it's very realistic. But if, if you could find a creative director who, who's also a creator, like an also person who creates content, that would be like, that would be an amazing marketing team. And, and so you go, Nate, well, what about the advertising, all that? To be honest, I think that's way easier. Like the, you know, media planning, buying on these media platforms, that's all easy. You know, what's really hard is getting all this content and creating a, a, an amazing product that actually fits into a market that actually has some pain points that need to be solved. And then, of course, obviously, your product market should identify how large that TAM is so that, you know, it's hopefully a valuable market for the business. So I feel like that's my dream team. If I got those two and I got them on a budget somehow, oh, God, like you could crush it. I'm, I don't know if it's because I just had a bunch of coffee, but I'm fired up by that answer. And I'll tell you why, like people listening, why that's a smart answer. Like he didn't say like, oh, I need SEO. I need paid acquisition. I need blah, 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 like community marketer. It's like you went for product, like, because you're thinking through growth, through virality, referrals, distribution, like engineering growth, which is really smart. And the second is building that content machine, because like at the end of the day, like it's not about how many dollars you spend. It's like, what are you putting out in front of people, which, which is super smart, which kind of leads in that, man, you're making me feel really good about our creative director. And it. It, and two other things you said that were really smart. One, full accountability, people that have full accountability on things. And then second, you said a creative director that can also make content. So it's kind of this hybrid of the player coach, right? They can do the strategic, but execute. Because when you find those people, oh man, that's the the perfect hybrid model. It, it's few and far between, right? And then that's entirely how we've based our, like my business model at Find Your Audience is I got so tired of being a strategic advisor and providing these great playbooks. And then honestly, you know, no offense, everyone's capitally constrained, but taking that, that strategy and, and being penny wise, pound foolish, you're going to get what you pay for. So if I can give a great strategy and a great playbook and you give it to a bunch of people who are frankly, potentially outsourced in third world countries that don't necessarily speak English or necessarily don't even have a track record, and then you execute it, the playbook's not going to do well, right? That's just what you, you, you do pay for what you get. And, and so it was incredibly frustrating, right? So, you know, I, predominantly that's why I built my business. We're supposed to provide, you know, not only the advisory services and the high level strategy, but we are accountable for the execution. And that's really, really important. So, but again, you know, going back to like just having two people, man, creative director and an executor at the same time, that's, that's, that's a win. That's a huge win. Yeah. It's funny, as we, I was prepping for this interview, I saw this thing. It's like, ask the questions you want to know the answer to first. So I'm just coming up very random with these, but I'm going to give you the next two ones I want to hear your opinion on. You can kind of choose the order because you've said something in some of your videos around this idea of marketing operations. 
which by the way is so boring and not sexy. But if you do it right, it's like it's everything. It's what makes or breaks a like A team versus like a, a D team, right? So I'd love to hear either your thoughts on like marketing operations and why that is important, why that matters. And then the other thing that I, I'd love to hit on is where do companies go wrong? Because everybody's reading the same books. Everybody's looking at like the same tactics and whatnot. But like some companies hit explosive growth and do exciting things and others don't. Like what what's like, What's that list of things the right companies do that the wrong companies aren't doing or vice versa? So I'll let so, you choose so, your own adventure there. Yeah, no, great. Again, huge, huge questions. They get course coming from a marketer, you know what to ask. At the marketing operations is, is what I like to call like, again, like, as you said, it, it's like the unsexy bits about marketing. And, and I feel like a lot of companies don't really see marketing in the way that I see it. Because I come from a very different background. So you, you have my bio. I, I came from a bit of a finance background, management consulting background. So I've looked at marketing in a very different lens. And, and when I've gone into organizations, it's, it's predominantly an execution issue. You have a bunch of people who aren't executing very well in marketing. Marketing doesn't find, find itself very well in, in strategy. And so it's this awkward baby where it like operates as an island, but like with piss poor management and also bad KPIs. And I'll, I, I can go on hours about KPIs. Um, but but I won't. But you know, it's operations about you know who's taking care of analytics and is analytics generating an observation for us? Is analytics tied into any of the new tools that we have purchased, whether it's sales or in the marketing? Who's actually taking care of the website? Who's actually taking care of translations? Every single company I've ever worked with who tries to do translations, everyone thinks there's like this this quick fix. If you're listening to me right now, and if you went to your marketing, whoever is accountable for marketing, and you said, I wanted my website completely translated in two to three different languages, you will watch that marketer die from the inside. Because now every single time you update that website, you have a massive operational issue. You have now created a massive time lag on how things get done. And people don't understand that process because, because marketers, we, we make everything look easy. So... So there's this massive operational bit in, in how marketing works and how marketing really is something that needs to be well-oiled to have what I consider maintenance-type activities continue to do well. And maintenance activities can fall into SEO. You know, are we posting articles and are we making good value of SEO practices? Are we sending consistent emails and nurturing our clients? And are those consistent emails actually being best practiced upon? Meaning, are we A-B split testing? Do we even know if the emails are hitting people's inboxes or is this just an activity that's just kind of on the side of our desk? Is the website updated? You know, do we even have our new products up there? Do our sales team even have the latest sales enablement tools? Where are the sales enablement tools? How do we distribute that sales enablement tools to the team? When we get that case study we just spent $5,000 on, does everyone in the team know why that's important and do they have access to it? And have they planned or showcased how they're going to use that in their emails? All of this is marketing operations. And people like look at marketing and they go, you do this, you do this. Well, the do this, do this. I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you guys, you need to classify that as a special initiative, a campaign. But really, there's two types of activities. You got your maintenance activities, which are kind of low touch, can be well planned out, and actually aren't really onerous once you get the foundation done. And then you have like your special activities which take a lot of effort, your events, your communities, a special demand generation campaign around like a high value piece, like a piece of asset. Those are all special. 
right? And so I feel like when when people look at marketing, they just again they look at you know it's oh it's just it's just posting oh it's this it's all this but it's not it's a lot of these moving parts and and just for everyone that's listening, you guys are marketers. You know how many departments you have to touch. You know how much coordination is involved and. For those that work in larger organizations, you're going to love this. You know how many people annoy you when you say you have something completed and now you have to get 32 other people to check off on it. You know exactly what that approval process is like. So it is very much an operational piece. It's not this like, if, if marketing could work in a silo, I could guarantee every single company would get marketing even way faster. But often that's not, right? Marketing, unfortunately, usually does not have full accountability. Even the CMO sometimes doesn't have full accountability. Why? CMO can approve something, but the CEO or president or COO or the head of salesperson is going to have to approve it too. So that's not full accountability. That's just, yeah. that's, 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 that's designed by, designed by committee. And, and so, so that's really, really frustrating. So, so that's, that's really the marketing operation bit. And that's why we focus because for companies that do do this and, and have tried to do this and they know how hard to do it, we do it well because we have scale. Most companies don't have scale to have two or three employees, but we have 25. So we 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 kind of bolt onto this. Now, I'm sorry. What was your your second question? Was yeah. Well, actually, even just to riff on that a little bit, like I think that's such a good point. What you're saying around this one idea of full accountability. A second thing is you hit on some things where you literally got into the details and the minutia, and I think some people are like, oh my gosh, really? But like that is what makes or breaks like a marketing team is seeing through because I think a lot of people can see a marketer is like, oh, you need to be the rainmaker in the meeting. That's like. Here's my viral ad campaign. You say it, mic drop, you walk out, and then it like prints money. Where really it's the opposite. One of the hacks we've had is we've started hiring people that have two skill sets. They aren't traditionally a marketer, but they're good at two things. One is project management, like good attention to detail. The second is they're really good at technical tasks, meaning like they can connect Zapier into Pipedrive, or they just have that like that kind of developer builder acumen, not meaning that they're they're technical to like code a website, but they understand how technology works. And those two things, and if they're like curious, you can teach people marketing principles and frameworks. But that's like been one sneaky hack to be like, oh, those two raw skills actually lead to a marketer that's going to outperform somebody that calls himself a marketer because they come up with rainmaker ideas. But that that's something that as you're talking, I'm like, oh, I totally agree with that. Yeah. And, and the amount of people, and I'm sorry, if you're an SEO expert and, and you're listening to this and you might fall not in this category, the amount of people that put SEO on their resume, I just like, I have like a rant on that on like one of my marketing bites, but like, come on, you don't know SEO just because you know how to do H1 tags and H2 tags. It's not SEO. <laughs> you don't know SEO just because you write content and you've used the tool online. That's not SEO. There's so many complexities around SEO. And so and we actually have a saying in our organization, it's really funny. That's, it's funny to some people, I guess, but it's, it's one, of our, one of our values is being comfortable, being uncomfortable. And, and, and it's this idea of like, it's okay to be lost in our organization, knowing that you're in a safe space that we're going to help you and teach you, but you can't give up, right? So, so if I tell you you can act Zapier to Pipedrive and you know, and like, you're like way out of your league, that's fine. That's fine. Be out of your league, but, but ask the right question to ask for help. Right. And if you have the humility to do that, you're going to do well. And you have the resiliency to not die by your ego. You're going to do well. 
and and so so I think I think that's like one thing that we like live and die by at, at find your audience. But I totally get where, where you're going with that. And and it and yeah, you're right. The technical part is is great. And you said project management. It's like the number one thing we we look for. So a lot of times when I'm in my last interviews, they always go, Hey, Nathan, you know, what what am I going to need to be successful here? I go, one, if you can't communicate, you're probably gonna you're probably gonna get fired. I'll be honest. If you can't communicate, you're done. And two, if you're just not naturally organized, you're probably not going to do well. So if you can't communicate, you can't organize, kind of just leads to be a bad project manager. Uh, I mean, I mean, seriously, it's it's so, especially if you're working asynchronously or online, it, it's so key to have that. And the question I was asking, what are the common mistakes? Because the thing that you do and the skill set you have with your team is people want to really grow and scale and go to that next level. The issue is companies can get more complicated they can get deeper benches. You start to move slower. You lose that edge. You lose that innovation. And if you're like, if your systems aren't dialed in, you're just going to become like the, kind of the laggers that that aren't doing exciting things. What are those common mistakes you see people, people make when they're trying to grow and scale and they, they just fall on their face? I think a, a great example of that is, so I've talked about this on one of my, one of my first guest podcasts and I call it like spotlight syndrome. I feel like a lot of organizations have spotlight syndrome. So, so what I mean by that is I feel like every company and every like executive team of a company feels like if they make one marketing mistake, like the world's going to know. Oh, oh my gosh, we sent out our 50,000 customers and we have a typo in like the second line. Like, oh, we're so unprofessional. Everyone's going to think we're stupid. Um, but the reality is that's not the case, right? So, so the reality is, is that ideally you can actually make your marketing department accountable, but you have to also accept the fact that they can make a mistake, which is natural for any department. Right. And, and I, and I think, and I think a lot of companies make the mistake of not making their marketing department not accountable. And, and what ends up happening is marketing then just becomes this really big time suck and, 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 and a kind of a, like a large expense. Because the company now feels like, well, I'm just reviewing all the marketers work. So what's the point of having the marketer, blah, blah. And then they still really discounting everything marketing is doing because they, they are really scared of this spotlight accident. They're very scared of all of this. And that's generally why a lot of companies do it because they don't, they feel like, oh, well, if, if, if we don't review it and we don't make everything is all the T's are dashed and all the I's are dotted that, that they can make a fundamental mistake that's going to destroy the company. But that's like the farthest from the truth. You're not Coca-Cola. You're not spending $3 million on an ad that's going to have 100% reach. You're not going to get that type of penetration anyways. So, so the reality is, is like J Jimmy Patterson said this really nicely to almost so Jimmy Patterson, for those that are not Canadian, is one of the richest men in, in, in Canada. And he's an 80-year-old that literally goes to the office 5 a.m. every day. He's very cool. And he says to all of his, of his executive members, he's like, your entire job is to make mistakes, but just don't bet the house. And what I'm going to say for every person that's listening to this, no marketer that I know of is capable of betting the house anyways. <laughs> Meaning you can't actually do a campaign that could potentially destroy you. Now, there are some beer examples, and I, I feel like you probably know which one I'm talking about, that have mm -hmm. certainly made a big impact. But, but let's just put, which, I'm not going to go into what happened in that campaign, but I'm just going to put this in perspective. Yeah. That got a lot of media attention. A ton of media attention is the company... Bankrupt? Yeah, yes or no? Yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> no. Not yet. Yeah, yeah. But they've made an impact, meaning 
even if you've made the impact, there's still time to, 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 to heal. There's still time to fix. Totally. There's still time to redirect. So this idea that a, a marketing department can actually spend and make a campaign that's so big to actually make a company bankrupt, you'd have to give them so much free reign and so much budget for them to do that, that it's just highly unlikely. So the reality is every single company should just make sure that their marketing team is fully accountable for the messaging and positioning and you yeah. need to stop designing by committee. And yes. why? Because, yeah. because designing by committee slows down the pro process easily by 50 to 70%. Like you would see way more content, way more SEO, way more campaigns, way more videos if you stop trying to review everything through every single department, right? And so I think that's the biggest issue is, is you got to let the marketing people do their marketing jobs. And if salespeople want to have a say, fine. You go do a sales test. We'll do a split test with our marketing language. Allow them to do that. Stop allowing sales to get the full say. Stop changing the marketing angle. Stop trying to be a bit more conservative. So for those that don't know, I, I've kind of gone through like 150 different research articles. But one of the things that's very clear, very clear theme in all of this, if your ad sucks, if it's not aesthetically appealing, and if it's not creative, and it's not slightly bizarre, no one's going to remember. So you're, you're conservative, middle of the line type ad, it's not going to do anything. You're yeah. just going to get lost, right? So trying to be this, this president or CEO or salesperson who's never done marketing, for you to be commenting on creative, I'm sorry, you don't have the experience. And if you did, well, maybe you should go into marketing. So yeah. it's designed by committee, this lack of accountability destroys marketing capabilities to really prosper as a function. Are you a business owner in desperate need of talent? but you have issues finding good people. Or worse, you find the talent, but then they want you to pay them double what you have budgeted. Yeah, I know the feeling. This is where remotely talents can help. Imagine having a personal HR team that finds you A plus talent, and here's the best part, it costs you 40 or even 80% less than US employees. It's magic. So let's say you need help with setting up your social ads, your Google ads, email marketing, website development, customer service, their team sources the top Ukrainian talent for you and they deliver three top vetted candidates straight to your inbox. It's a one-time payment and best yet, they give you a 60-day guarantee to ensure you're happy. Hey, if it doesn't work out, they'll find and replace the talent for free. Even better, 3% of all sales go to the Children's Hospital in Ukraine. At Growth Head, our agency, we've hired four people from Ukraine. I am blown away by the level of work we're getting. So whether you need a virtual assistant or a creative director, give this a try. Go to remotelytalents.com right now and start a conversation. See if they can help you. You really have nothing to lose. So another Canadian up in Toronto, I believe, Ben Yoskovitz, who runs Highline Beta, he says the exact same thing, but it's more around when big companies want to launch a startup studio. It's like the number one thing is like, let the organization have accountability and run separately and not do this design by committee because it slows it down and people don't have enough context or expertise in that. And that's, that's so true because with these big companies, that's, that's what happens. You also brought up a good point around You've been doing research and like seeing things and how it correlates to that. That kind of leads to marketing bites. Or I'd love to go down this path of you put out a lot of cool. I don't know why I'm pointing at you with the pen right now. So sorry. You have a lot of cool and interesting videos around things that you have seen 
from the research papers you you read to what people were doing in marketing over hundreds of years ago, what has stood out that you think the audience would would get a kick out of or be interested in that that you've put out? Because you've done a lot of research. I think one of the really interesting things, and in, so one of the subsets of the groups we work with are restaurants and and kind of national franchises. And one of the really, really interesting things, so there's something called the serial position effect and also the peak end rule. Both are the same things, but are from two different researchers. So this is what I love. It's like, I've gone through all these articles and there's been these common themes. And, 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 and it's a premise that, and, and this is things that like we kind of inherently know. So this goes back to what you, you, you and I were talking about. It's like, us marketers, we have all these good ideas. We know they're good ideas, but we, you know, we, we kind of fail to say that there's actually a whole bunch of research that indicates it's very true, like on a pure like psychological effect level. And the peak end rule and the zero position rule is basically to sum it up. No one cares about the middle. People only care about the beginning and the end. And this is what we remember the most. And if you think about it, even in our relationships, we think this way, right? Yeah. We think about the honeymoon phase and we think about, you know, for those, those that had gone divorce, the divorce, right? You don't, you don't really try to remember anything in between. So it's very natural for us to have this effect where we only remember the beginning and the end. And the beginning part is really, really interesting because it just reinforces this whole idea that if you look ugly aesthetically, if you, if you don't bother trying to make yourself presentable, that is an impression that is very impactful, right? You can't come back from that. So it goes back to this idea that first impressions really matter. And then, and then the end part, how do you come off from that conversation? How do you, how, how do you make sure that they remember you when you cut off that, that, that end part is really, really important. So for, for, for restaurants, you know, you could save a bad dinner by giving them free things at the end, right? Because they remember that. Yes, the service was bad. Yes, you might have screwed up on order. But bring that, that extra dessert, bring that extra meal, bring them an extra cocktail at the end of the night, which by the way, on a cost basis is nothing to you as a restaurant owner, can really save that customer. And then on top of that, there's research talking about how negative people are very negative. And when you have a negative experience, you tell five people. When you have a positive experience, you tell one person. So the funny thing is, is that the effects of negativity are, are greatly amplified to your on an economical level, far more incentivized to, to, to support someone who's actually going through a negative experience because it will impact you. So I found that that was like very interesting because, you know, I, I've obviously seen marketing and gone through marketing and executed marketing, and I know all these great practices, but it's really fascinating that I've gone through like all like 150 different types of like, like scientific articles. And there is very clear evidence. A lot of our best practices are very much backed by time-tested scientific studies. Almost every single thing that we've talked about, like FOMO, fear of missing out, scarcity, everything Chiadani is talking about, it's not just him. It's like 14 other research articles that back this up in an indirect way. And they've made me feel even more confident in what I do, but it's made me even more laser-focused on like where I want to focus on. And that peak end rule, the seer positioning, just reinforces a lot about this like first impression part, which I think a lot of people really underestimate, especially some bootstrapped owners, they go, well, I'm getting business. It doesn't really matter. But if you look at it in this method, you could be actually missing out in a ton of business, right? Because you're just not coming off polish. And the best example I gave was 
you know, a lot of people don't spend a lot of time on their sales deck and, and how their sales deck look like because they're like, well, we already have the sales call. But it's that first impression of the call, right? When you get onto that call, like first, first visual is your sales deck. And I always go, look, you know, it's a little bit like an animator's Birkin. So if you bought a Birkin that was $30,000 for your wife yeah, and gave it to her and it came in like a wet, like brown paper bag, even though it was vacuum sealed and plastic, so you know, it's fine. You just gave it to her like that. That whole experience is done. It doesn't matter how expensive that bag was. Like, it totally. doesn't matter. It was, it's real. That experience is done. Where, and, and, and I find like that analogy is the same for your sales deck. It doesn't matter how good your service is. If you get that first impression that doesn't show or aesthetically look like it has value, you're that brown, wet paper bag. It doesn't matter that your service is genuinely worth $30,000 to that person. You have to give off that impression, even though they know they don't care. So that box, that, that, that beautiful, strong cardboard box with its nice offset printed orange and, yeah. and you know, probably embossed sides. All that kind of stuff. On it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you don't notice half of that, but that doesn't matter. It's the first impression that matters, right? And so I, I think, again, that's also something that I think a lot of companies just like completely overlook. They really think it's really not that big of the deal. But like psychological studies all state, well, if you really want to make an impression, like an impression on someone, and if you want to stay like mentally convenient, then you need to, you need to really exploit every single one of these things. And, and literally there are probably more than 40 different studies that state that the first thing you see impacts the person incredibly in more than one way. Isn't it so fun? Well, first up, you're making me think of all the different examples of that from working with DTC brands and doing unboxing to like the sales deck and the pitch. I'm even thinking through like what your Zoom background should look like for you as a professional, right? There's like so many examples of that. And then how it ends, because it's like leave them laughing, leave them with that feeling. That's so interesting. You know, it's funny. Like I, I feel like I'm similar to you that as you go deeper into marketing or growth or business in general, it makes you go just back to the fundamentals and the basics around user psychology, persuasion, because that's kind of the core of, of a lot of this. But you mentioned the like 150 studies and research reports. Where are you finding these? Where, where do these exist on the internet or in an actual library? So basically what I did was I went through a rabbit hole of like using ChatGPT to help me research articles. And then from the research articles, I had reference articles. And then for anyone... So, okay, first of all, anyone that's listening to this, as much as I'm making it sound like it's simple, ChatGPT hallucinates all the time, so it's not that simple. So, so, so I, I used ChatGPT to essentially start the research. And then what I started doing was I started reviewing research that referenced that research. And then it created like a little like a, a research tree that allowed me to go find other research to essentially find different effects or biases or heuristics that affect marketing. And then essentially I review all of this. And so I'm in the middle of compiling this like very large like summary document. I'm going to call it like my cheat sheet of like all like essentially what all this research article states and, and like what are like very common practical marketing tactics, both on the creative and on the operational side that we all do that are actually backed by a whole bunch of scientific studies. And so, so again, like first impressions, aesthetics, things like that, things that we intuitively know as marketers, but we, we know like, you know, scientifically it really has a lot of backing. So that's, that's kind of how I started on this journey. I've been doing this for two months 
Um, so, so like almost every other night I'm spending like an hour or two hours just reading articles. And the one thing that I have really been surprised at is there, I haven't mapped out all of the common themes, but there are a lot of common themes and there are very common practices in marketing. So that's what I'm really excited about that. I'm going to be able to come up with this thing and I'm not really producing anything new, but I'm, I'm producing a document that I feel like is going to fundamentally change the confidence of water marketers. Basically go, see, like, they'll be able to go to any, like, CEO and just be like, look, like, there's, like, 32 different research articles that basically say this is true. So you can tell me that I'm just crazy, but but there's a lot of reasoning behind this. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, maybe you can have it done by next Monday so we can put the link in the show notes of the podcast. If not, we'll that, just make people follow you on, on Instagram. But I want to go back to you, like... Your story is Nathan and like the linear story of leading up to all this. Talk to me, like, when did all this get started? Because you mentioned, you know, you're in Canada, you mentioned working in management consulting, like kind of take us down that path of like what you're doing in the early days and how it led to you having your own thing. So, so my, my background is like really, really weird. I go like eclectic. So I was trained in the polytechnical school here in, in BC in a marketing entrepreneurship program. So it was marketing focused, but with an entrepreneur focus as well. And one of my first businesses, actually my first two businesses, you'll last, one was a club promotions company. It's still actually running. I actually don't nice. think, you know. <laughs> and then and I also started a social media company. So I started a social media company when I was like 19, where I was essentially micro-talenting the entire workflow. So like very operationally oriented. Yeah. So I was selling packages for like $5,000 when when my actual cost for the product was like 500 bucks because I broke down every single part of social media research and content creation by the level of technical talent required. So I had someone working for a dollar an hour, $3 an hour, $5 an hour, $10 an hour, $15 an hour, but they were only doing what their technical skill sets needed. So, so that's how I was able to get it so cheap. And then obviously I, I became a VP of finance at the age of 21. Very lucky. I hustled for that job. That was not a traditional resume approach. I flew to China. It's a long story. Um, wait, so, sorry. We, wait, so you're, you're hustling, doing your own thing with a club promotion. You're running yeah. essentially a social media agency, amazing margins. And then do you keep that running in addition to doing this? No, no. So I, I had to cut that all out. And that will be because the VP of finance job was like more very interesting for me. And then, so I left to China. I did that for about a year and a half. And then I came back and I started working for some angel investors in their private companies and really just managing kind of on behalf of them, a little bit like an observer, but really just managing the companies and providing some strategic like advice and direction and finding opportunities. Like an example of that was a people company. Another one was an online publishing company in, in people, funny enough. And so it, it was just this opportunity for me to really look at strategy also worked for a publicly traded company that was in military uh, use cases, bringing military technology into kind of retail landscapes. And then from all that, one of the things that I was mostly annoyed about was I'd spend all this time doing strategy and advisory work and nothing would get done, kind of just sit on people's desks. So I'd write these beautiful documents, outline everything, research everything to death, and then it would just do nothing. So I got very yeah. frustrated at a job. After that, I kind of left to Toronto. So I moved to Toronto a little while ago. My, I go between Vancouver and Toronto. I was a CEO for an ad technology company just for a little bit. And then I left and then I essentially created Find Your Audience from, from um, some of the people that I met. And, and what's really interesting, just even between there, I had some downtime. And that downtime, as you can tell, I'm, I'm very much an A personality. So I was bored and I started dabbling in affiliate marketing. 
but not the traditional affiliate marketing, which you might hear on like social media and all this kind of stuff. It's not about blogs and content creation. I did something called media arbitrage. And media arbitrage was essentially where I was buying, I was spending out of pocket money to essentially bring leads to other people's offers. And so I was a super affiliate. We were, we were, you know, super affiliates defined as doing more than, you know, kind of like six figures a month. Incredibly stressful business, but <laughs> made me really, really understand all of the nuances of media buying. I say to every single person, if you want to bet, if you want to find the best media buyers, the best media buyers are media arbitragers by far. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's like their entire life depends on every single cent. It right. really does. Yeah. And so all that kind of culminated into this business. And, and I, I kind of came into it starting with small businesses. You know, I had to cross the chasm too. We went from small business to medium to enterprise. And, you know, generally speaking, it was driven from passion. I've always loved marketing. I, I, I wish I could do more B2C campaigns. Pre-COVID, we were going to do something really fun for crafts, but COVID happened, they cut budgets. But I feel like just a lot of people were getting taken advantage of and I didn't like that. So we started helping old friends and lots of family and lots of like, you know, like arms like relationships. And then obviously we grew and, and now we're, we are a 25 person agency. We work with the largest category leaders in, in Canada. We work with Firmex, the largest data provider, Procon, the largest IT recruiting company in Canada. We work with Constellation Software, the largest software SaaS company in, in Canada. And you know, we're very proud to have some marquee clients. And then we work with private equity, really advising on some of their clients. And that's everything from like B2B industrial, like super unsexy, like refrigeration engineering company to super fun, which is like a national franchise for restaurants and fast casual. So just lots of fun. We're not, we're not really in any specific industry. And, you know, I think the reason we can do that is because I don't come from this very traditional creative approach. I look at it very operationally and I go like, what's the priority of marketing? Where can we help amplify revenue? And, and that could really mean a lot of different things for a lot of different organizations. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I have a bazillion questions on it, but I'm going to go with this one. And you said it was too long of a story, so we don't have to get into it. But I always look at like, what are those big, like non-linear leaps people make in their career? And you go from doing your own thing to all of a sudden you're in China and then a year and a half or two years later, you're back working with angel investors. Those are two huge leaps. What did they see in you to take that bet on you? Because you weren't proven. Or like, what were you doing to be able to make those big jumps? Because I think a lot of people listening are like, oh, that sounds interesting. I'd love to make a big leap like that. I think, I, so So I can say that this is the one thing and, and my head of operations always says this to me. She's like, you always ask the right questions that no one else is asking. And she's been on almost all, she's been on, it's Rudy, here's her name. She's been on uh, several of my, my sales calls. And she always goes, she's like, I don't, I don't know where you're getting these questions from. And I think when I was quite young, I was quite driven. I was, I was listening to audiobooks on my way to school. So like outside of school, I was finishing courses that were audio courses on like other things. So like it just kind of shows my personality. And I think at a very young age, I was asking questions that I shouldn't really be asking because I shouldn't actually know. Um, and, and so I find a lot of the times when I'm meeting with people, I, I find that the confidence is coming from the fact that I'm asking questions that either A, no one else has even bothered to ask, or B, 
I have gone two steps logically in the conversation before they have to ask yeah. a question that's really important. And yeah. genuinely speaking, that provides a lot of confidence. And so I've been able to do that at a very young age. And I find that that's kind of one of the reasons why I was able to make those leaps. And they were able to trust me because it shows that I'm able to operationally and logically in a, in a realistic fashion, walk through their business and, and kind of fumble into a difficult or, or a difficult challenge or a pain point without them guiding. So you know how a lot of times a lot of people are, are asking questions and they're really fishing, right? They're, they're fishing expeditions where they're asking questions. And they're trying to generate someone into a, a, a challenge or a pain point. A lot of salespeople are trained in this. You know, ask discovery questions and get them to the point where they're actually emitting their own pain points. I kind of do it a little bit different where I state their pain points well before they've gone to that point. And I find by doing that, they get a lot of confidence that I know them, right? So it's not this like really onerous, like, oh, well, how is your marketing doing today? Okay. Okay, and, and so why do you find that that's not producing things very well? And, and how do you find that's not helping your business, right? So they're walking them to the challenge. So I'll ask the first question. So why do you think marketing is not working to them? So I'll answer the question. And I'll go, okay, so do you, do you feel that content is actually the bottleneck right now based on your team size? So I won't go through the three different questions. I'll just right, go right yeah. You cut to and, the heart of it, yeah. Yeah, and, and, I, and I find because I make that distinction without the journey, there's a ton of confidence. So it's kind of like if you went to someone who was like a, like a, call like a programmer, right? If you went to a program, you were talking about programming. Do you find it really difficult when the functions and the object libraries get too big? And they go, what? Or if you go into a real estate, you go, what does the performer look like for the next three years for the project? And on, on a cost basis, does it look like this? And how much of a percentage is, is marketing? Because in performance for real estate, it's mostly a percentage-based game. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're asking these questions that imply knowledge. Yeah. And I find when you do that in any industry, which is what salespeople are supposed to do, <laughs> they trust you more. Right. So like, yeah. so like I, I work with a manufacturing company. So you can imagine if someone goes, Oh, I know that the standard throughput for your industry is XYZ. And I also know that the difficulty usually for that is usually supply. So are you having a raw material issue? And are you having a raw material issue because you don't actually know the boxes are coming in on time because you don't have a scanning system? But most of the time, they don't say that. They go through, oh, what's your problem? Do you have yeah, a throughput yeah. issue? Right? And so I think that's really how I've made those jumps. And, and, and that isn't necessarily the easiest skill set because I kind of have learned to do this intuitively. I've tried to teach Rudy. And, and I find that that is kind of how I was very fortunate to make jumps. I was able to create confidence and obviously I was able to perform. And so therefore I was able to kind of continue on this trajectory in these senior roles that truthfully on paper, I should not have gone. Like, I'll be honest in that. Yeah. So on paper, I should have not gone these jobs. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good answer. Now I see why I get frustrated with training some salespeople because they have to take five questions as opposed to where it could take you and I like two questions or, or whatever that is. That's that's such a good superpower. It goes to the idea of being curious, being a good listener, and cutting to the heart of what matters and skimming past all the, the BS. That's well done. That's one of the best answers I've heard. Nice. That's very cool. So you and I are both agency owners. You know, we're both like managing people, selling services. Talk about that journey. If you were doing it all over again today, like what would you 
you do differently if you're starting today? Or what did you do right, whether it was intentionally or accidentally? Like, wow, I kind of nailed that. Just for anyone that's looking to go down that path, happy, happy to give all my battle scars to you. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I just started listening to this this audiobook called The Seven Figure Agency. That's not a shout out, by the way. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not attesting for those books. I just started. That's like, I'm not <laughs> endorsing this. So just to be very clear where you just get, don't go and listen to it yet. I'll let you know, maybe on my post. But, you know, I think one of the, the things that I, I've been good at is these, I've looked at my business in the sense that I have different functions and those functions are micro tactics that people search. And one of the things, so first, how did I scale? One, I got very uncomfortable but comfortable empowering my team members so my team members are very accountable that took me a long time that's a very long time for a lot of people to get comfortable with so that was i think the number one thing that i'm not going to say i did well but i got through it <laughs> delegating is hard yeah. it is it is it is difficult and 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 you know what it is it's a control and the other thing that i think i have done well is i've really looked at my business in the sense of a business model in the sense that I have retainers and I have fixed fees. So the way I look at it is my retainers cover all my operational overhead and all my fixed fees are actually margin. So anything I do as a special project is actually margin for me because it rides on my operational team. So my retainers constantly feeding my business and then and then all of my fixed. So on a financial perspective, that's how I model it. And then on a on a business perspective, on like an actual business business perspective, and I'm getting there because it's taken some time to get the scale for this. But I've really looked at all the activities we do. So we, we do everything from like end-to-end conference planning for companies, um, end-to-end community conference planning, end-to-end webinars, end-to-end sales playbooks, brand books, all these things. And what I've really known and seen has been one of my growth factors is taking one of these projects and really systematically building it into a, a business in its own. Meaning I want every single tactic that I do to be a SaaS product that I could potentially sell, like a like not a software, but you know, literally something that is SaaSable in the sense that I can sell a product as a service. So my website building that's very much like a box. Now we have a set process, we have set developers, we have contents. Like everything is like packaged tight, and so now I can I can pump out websites like easy, not easy. They're a lot of work, but the system is literally full through. And like we've, we've done, we just did a Herjavec's website from Shark Tank. And so what's nice about that is we went from doing one, two websites a year to, I think we've completed like 12 to 14 websites in the last quarter. And so what, what I think is also really important is like looking at your tactics. And if you're just starting out, I would, what I would change is not to do this whole retainer, do everything model. I would really just focus on a tactic and a specialty market, which is what Seven Figure does. It's kind of obvious. Focus on a market and sell better to them. It's easier to sell to them. But focus on something specific to them and make that very, very repeatable. It just makes hiring easy. It makes process easy. It makes me- measuring margin easier. I went the, the other approach where I literally do everything under the sun. Um, literally, from procurement to event planning to demand generation to creative to <laughs> copywriting. And... What I have now done is I've gone to scale in some of them and then I'm making them in systems and then I'm selling them even more. Yeah. So I, I went a harder route. So I think if you're starting out and if, you, if you're not a glutton for pain, um, you'd probably specialize first, make those into yeah. systematic things and then, and then scale them and then maybe bridge it to an adjacent service. So if you're doing copywriting, then go into SEO or if you're doing social media, go into SEO and content writing. 
go into more of that. And then when, when you're doing that, then you can do more management. And then when you get into management, then you can get into other things. So I think going that right would be easier. That's what I would do. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the silver lining of trying, like doing a lot of things and honing down, you really start to get reps in what you're good at, what you're great at, what you like to do, what you don't like to do, where you can really like be a thought leader. So the key is that you're like chipping away at that. I, cause I had a very similar path and then reading the, I haven't read the seven figure agency. I read built to sell, um, which was kind of similar framework where it's around like specialized niche down productized go that path. So yeah, I think I'd be giving the same advice to myself. Very cool. One last question I like to ask everybody is, what is the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your professional career? If you look back either in your early days or something recent, it could even be something that was like tough love that you like didn't want to hear, but you had to hear. But what what comes to mind whenever I, I give you that prompt? There's two tough love moments and they're very different. And I'd like to share one of them. One of them, he's a, he's a lawyer from SRFF in, in New York. And he used to work with us when I was road showing in Hong Kong and China. And he was in Hong Kong. And when I was road showing as a VP of finance, it was rough. Lack of a better word, like I was, I was being run like a dog. I'd wake up in the morning, I'd have meetings, I'd have meetings all day. Sometimes I wouldn't even eat. Yeah. Like it, it was rough. And... I remember this moment I was in the boardroom with the investment bankers and the lawyer came out and he saw me and he's coming out with my boss and he looked at them. He's like, we're going to lunch. And then my boss was like, don't worry about them. He's like, but they haven't eaten. And he's like, don't worry about them. He walked out and then he came back and he brought me food. And that was like a really, I was very appreciative of that incredibly. And I think, I know. It sounds like that should be like a natural thing for people to do. But to me at that time, like he could give less of a ass about who I am. And I really appreciated that he brought me through because literally when I was in Hong Kong or if I was on a road show with a schedule, I was not eating. Like I was tied to either like the next meeting and like literally from like morning to night, I'm either working on the PowerPoint, working on the pitch or pitching. That's all I was doing. Yeah. And so that was like very meaningful for me. And and when you produce this podcast, I'm gonna I'm gonna send it to him so he knows because I just ran into him like 12 years later and I was like, dude, I have not seen you since Hong Kong. And and it, and it was a lovely moment. The the other moment is a good friend. So I so a long time ago, I was interning at Collier's. I worked under a fellow named Deepak Dewan. He's out of Toronto, and we were in the Shangri La lobby, and I was asking him about what I should do in my life. And I was just turning 30, I think, or I was 29 or something of the sort. And he's a tough love man. Oh man, is he ever tough love? And he said to me, he's like, you know what, Nathan, you can screw around in your 20s. That's okay. But if you came to me in, in your middle of your 30s and you're still screwing around, I'm going to say you're shit out of luck, Nate. So you know what? You want to focus? You better start focusing now. Because 30s is your last 10 years where you get to maybe make a name for yourself. So don't F it up. And I didn't enjoy that conversation. But he's a, he's a person I highly respect. And that's essentially why I find your audience is this big. It's because I generally had shiny object syndrome. I had ADD when it came to businesses. I, I tried to spread myself thin all the time. And 
as soon as I started putting all the effort into find your audience, I'm not kidding. We went from a four person firm to an eight person firm to a 14 person firm. If it wasn't for COVID, we would have been, we would be like the size of 50 people. And it just shows how like focus, not only in your business, but in the way you market and everything focus, focus has this massive amplifying effect that I feel like a lot of people don't respect enough. Man, it's like the hardest thing to do, the easiest advice to give, but when you do it right, it's it's everything. But shiny object syndrome distractions are very real, but they come at the the cost of focus. Those are two awesome stories, man. Very cool. And I even and I'm a horrible. I didn't even send Nathan the questions ahead of time, so all these it's just off the top of his head. So extra degree of difficulty for the the French judge that's looking at this, but um. Nathan, where can we point people if they want to learn more about you, your agency, the content you put out? Because just so you guys know, he's putting out some phenomenal video content that it's pretty fun to nerd out on. But where should we send them? Yeah, so like on Instagram, you can check out my handle at fya.marketingbytes. And that's with a Y. So you'll see my short reels there. You can go on my TikTok if you're on. No one follows me on TikTok. I've, I've given up on TikTok. I'll worry about that later. You can you can find me on our website at www.findyouraudience.online. Or of course, you can just look at my name, Nathan Young, spelled with a Y-E-U-N-G on LinkedIn. I don't think there's a ton of Nathan Youngs that are marketing, so should probably pop up there. But those are generally the three places. But would love for anyone here to follow me on my Instagram. It's really where I'm producing content. I'm engaging with people. And yeah, I, I, I love it. I love producing the content and I've gotten pretty used to it now. Yeah, if you want to stay sharp and want some snackable content in between whatever meme accounts you're following, I would definitely check it out. It's it's a good one. Nathan, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thank you. I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, If you need help growing your business, check out GrowthHit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthHit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. Are you a business owner in desperate need of talent, but you have issues finding good people? Or worse, you find the talent, but then they want you to pay them double what you have budgeted. Yeah, I know the feeling. This is where remotely talents can help. Imagine having a personal HR team that finds you A plus talent, and here's the best part, it costs you 40 or even 80% less than US employees. It's magic. So let's say you need help with setting up your social ads, your Google ads, email marketing, website development, customer service. Their team sources the top Ukrainian talent for you and they deliver three top vetted candidates straight to your inbox. 
It's a one-time payment, and best yet, they give you a 60-day guarantee to ensure you're happy. Hey, if it doesn't work out, they'll find and replace the talent for free. Even better, 3% of all sales go to the Children's Hospital in Ukraine. At Growth Head, our agency, we've hired four people from Ukraine. I am blown away by the level of work we're getting. So whether you need a virtual assistant or a creative director, give this a try. Go to remotelytalents.com right now and start a conversation. See if they can help you. You really have nothing to lose.